You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Well, as I trust most of you, if not all of you know, fall is upon us. And it's not because we feel the change in temperature as it is we see the change in decorations. Uh, Just yesterday, my wife and I were at the amazing store Hobby Lobby. It's so amazing as my wife thinks it to be. I was amazed by how many different uses of the color brown and orange you could find and how many different items of decoration there were to advertise at your front porch or your apartment or your living room or your car or your school or your desk or just yourself that fall is here. When fall is here, though, we have to realize what's coming soon thereafter is Thanksgiving, and what's beyond us, what's really about Thanksgiving is Black Friday. Thanksgiving seems like it's a warm-up, really, for uh, retail therapy on steroids. Black Friday, Cyber Monday, for those of you not familiar with these things, these are basically uh, shopping uh, buffets. And stores will often try to advertise the discounts and deals that they have that you might not otherwise know unless they had made you aware of them to kind of shift your attention and, more importantly, your money to go to them, where they can provide a deal on a new toy, a new tablet, a new TV that your life would otherwise be better if you were the possessor of, promising you all kinds of joy and happiness, of course, until next year's Black Friday when something else is offered to you. And this is what inevitably happens in the fall time when the shopping season is that you and I are made aware of deals, discounts, opportunities, that if you knew of it, you would be better for having it. Well, interestingly, and perhaps confusingly to some of you, I am here to offer a similar type of announcement. But it's not anything that you have to buy with your money. Nevertheless, it is good news that I want to declare to you. And it's the good news that's often missed by many people, even Christians, understanding today. It's the good news of the church of Jesus Christ. But unlike these discounts and these technology devices and these toys that inevitably expire, uh, the batteries run dry, the uh, RAM has to be updated, the chips have to be changed out, Uh, the screens become clear in resolution, the church does not expire because it's directly connected to the head of the church, Jesus Christ. This morning, we come to just that very message, the good news of your local church. Now, if you're a Christian, I believe because you're a Christian, you have heard of the good news of the gospel, which is, I suppose, in some sense, a turn of phrase To say the good news of the gospel is to say the good news of the good news. Uh, To those of you who maybe are not Christians, you maybe are not clear about what the gospel is. It might feel like a password in the Christian fellowship. You say it a lot and somehow people hug you, high five you, and you're like, I don't know what we're talking about, but I'm with you. 
The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, because against the backdrop of humanity, the canvas, if you will, that what we see of society is painted black from our sin, our rejection, our rebellion against a holy, right God who creates us, has authority over us, and we knowingly, repeatedly, volitionally rebel against him. We do it from what we know and what we desire and what we pursue and how we feel and what we chase after. God being holy and righteous would be right for all of eternity to judge us into the condemnation of nothing less than hell. But the good news is that he provides a way of escape. Not of our emptiness, but of the consequence of our sin. And so he sends his son to not simply be a moral example, not to simply be a religious reformer if things have gone bad from centuries of diversion and perversion, no, actually to be a substitute, that he is the righteous lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that all those who believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. This is the good news. Sinners being reconciled to God, being declared right when they are not right, being declared pure when they're not pure because the righteousness of Christ is credited to them. And here's the kicker not because of anything they have done or promised to do, but because of what Christ and Christ alone has done in their faith in him. And that faith alone saves them. And they rejoice. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. And if you're not a Christian, that's the number one thing I want you to take away from this morning. The songs, the reading, the praying, the preaching. Remember that and deal with that reality. What will you do in response to that? Will you believe or will you reject? But to those of you who are Christians, and even those of you who are not Christians, by all means, please listen along and track with us here. To those of you who are Christians, I'm here to also be an ambassador of the good news of the church. Because this is oftentimes what I feel like a lot of Christians just do not fully understand. And to your defense, quite understandably, that's because perhaps we didn't disciple you, we didn't teach you what Jesus says, right? In the Great Commission, make disciples, baptize them, and then teach them to obey all that I commanded. What did Jesus teach in his word? So many Christians are ignorant to this reality. Well, when we come to this, we understand the reality of the gospel. The good news of Christ and therefore the people of Christ. Now, if you're just joining us for the first time, I want to say, as it's been reiterated to you already, welcome to the Gathering of Grace Church. We are a family of redeemed sinners who want to love others as God has loved us. And we hope already you feel loved here this morning. But it's not because we're like really nice people. It's because we have an amazing Savior who changes rather selfish people's hearts to love others. When we otherwise, by default, just love ourselves, no matter how nice we are. And we've been working our way through the book of Galatians. It's a letter that Paul wrote to a bunch of small churches in the southern part of the kind of Middle East Mediterranean area, this area at that time known as Galatia. And he writes to them, and we've been studying this for the previous months. And now we come to really what we've described, described as the after party, the Galatians after party. I call it that simply because we've preached through all of Galatians. We've seen it in its big picture and its smaller pieces, but we wanted to kind of come back and revisit a few key doctrines. And so two weeks ago, we talked about false teaching, as we've learned from Galatians. Last week, we talked about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and how that corrects what oftentimes is a perversion and distortion very common to us here in Miami, but not unique to us here in Miami. But now we come to this final lesson for our purposes here in this after party, and that is the teaching of the church. 
Now, here is the main point. By way of screen, I'll show it to you because it's a rather long point, so track with me here. This is what I want you to get from this morning. The main point is this. The church is the collection of followers of Jesus Christ, who Jesus Christ himself is the head of the church. He is the true senior pastor, to use modern-day vernacular. The, the church is understood as being universal and eternal, with local and practical implications to our relationships with other Christians. To profess to be a Christian is to profess to be a part of the universal church, which is seen in your commitment to and participation with the local church. So saying that to you differently, for someone who's a Christian, they are declaring that the righteousness of Christ has been credited to them. That's their position but that has some practical implications on how they then live their life accordingly. They desire to live righteously. By no means, sadly, embarrassingly, and regrettably, are they perfect in that, but you and I want to live that. Well, similarly speaking, someone who claims to be a Christian and therefore a part of the universal church, by position, has some practical implications of what that means for them, and that's what we're going to learn today. That's our time together in Galatians. Let's Think of three questions. In this first one, really sort of two parts of the question. Question number one, you can see here on the screen, what is the church and what is a church? And here's what I'm doing here in this question. I am basically taking a big look at the scripture, particularly in the New Testament, before we start to focus in on Galatians. Because I want to make sure that we're all on the same page and I don't assume anything here. And this is particularly helpful to those of you who maybe grew up in the church but don't quite understand it, or those of you who are investigating Christianity and you're kind of wondering what a church is. You might think of a church as like a synagogue to Judaism or a mosque to Islam, and therefore you might think the church is well, honestly like um, this thing. And it might look differently depending on where you are. I mean, we've got beautiful stained glass windows. We've got high ceilings. This church, as formerly known as Miami Church Baptist Church, has been here since the 40s, historic church. You might think of other churches in the city of Miami who have had a great impact. You might think of the architecture, the building. But is, but is that what it is? Is that what we see it to mean? And perhaps if you do, then I want to correct that this morning. So let's first of all talk about the universal church. The universal church, as you'll see here, is a heavenly and ultimate assembly of everyone, past, present, and future, who belongs to Christ's New covenant and kingdom. Now, that's a lot of words. Let me break this down for you. Jeremiah the prophet and Jeremiah said he is making a new covenant with his people. That all those who put their faith in Christ are a part of this. And this is radical because it doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. It doesn't matter what gender you are. It doesn't matter what socioeconomic class you are. It's all those who are in Christ by faith are a part of his kingdom. In fact, that's so often what Jesus proclaims, right? Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, he says, good news the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, he says. That's phenomenal news. And this idea of the universal church, what it describes here is the ultimate assembly of everyone, past, present, and future. This is the reality that anybody who has already lived and died in your lifetime and well beyond our lifetime as far as before it, we will be united together in person ultimately in Christ. You can think of it like this. You're going to have a massive family reunion of people you know and people you do not know, but you'll come to know. 
All of that is a part of the universal church. And those, if the Lord does not return before then, who come after us, if we die before he comes back, who put their faith in Christ, will be a part of that church. And that is as true for you whether you live here in Miami or in Milan, Italy. Whether you're from Nicaragua or you're born and raised in Nigeria, you're a part of the church. And that is profound in its reality. Think of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. Peter says to them, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you had received mercy. The way you join the universal church is you become a Christian. That's, that's the reality of that. But understand this, as it says there in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, this idea of not being a people, but now God's people, had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You know one of the realities of becoming a Christian is, by relationship to God, you are adopted. And do you know what happens when a mom and dad adopts a kid? That kid meets their other siblings who have also been adopted by those parents. So you not only have the parent, you also have the siblings. That's the reality of relationships in the body of Christ. This is the church that Jesus promised to build in Matthew 16 when he said to Peter, upon this rock, upon this profession, I will build my church. That's the church universal. And I imagine most Christians are like, that's cool. I mean, I, I kind of rolled deeper than I realized. But let's talk about not just what is the church, let's talk about what is a church. And this gets us to our definition of a local church, as you can see there. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name as an affirmation of their identification with and faithfulness to Jesus Christ, their Savior. They do this through gospel preaching and the gospel ordinances, which is baptism and the Lord's Supper. In other words, the first group is seen in the second group. There's a visible display of not only their identification with Christ, but their identification with Christ's people. They regularly recognize their responsibility in their faithfulness to Christ is largely seen to their faithfulness to his word, which teaches them about what? The one another's. You and I are as much connected to Christ as we are connected to each other and care for one another. Something we'll see repeatedly throughout Galatians yet again this morning. A heavenly membership in the universal church needs to show up on earth and seen by those who witness. Think of it like this, a country, right? The United States of America. There is a, a boundary, there's a border, there's a place, and you are either in the country or out of the country. But did you know that as a United States citizen, you can go to many other countries around the world, and you can go to what's referred to as the United States Embassy. And that embassy has a working relationship with the country that it's in, that that ground that the embassy is on, that the physical space that it's on, actually is representative of the country that it's from. So when you are in that place, the United States Embassy, you are a representation of the country to whom you are a citizen of. And that's not unique to the United States. It can be true whether you're from Peru, whether you're from uh, Panama, other parts of the world, they have embassies. Do you realize that, friends? that the local church is an embassy. It's an outpost of heaven. Displays of people in person together where they are coming in and professing to be citizens of the kingdom. And how do we know if their profession is true? Well, Matthew 16, 
Who do they profess Christ to be? Have they responded by faith in Christ? And then secondly, do they intend to live as citizens of that kingdom by being baptized and participating in the Lord's Supper and living together in community? The universal church becomes a visible local church through its gathering, its affirming of one another, its preaching of the word, its participating in baptism, the Lord's Supper. This is true without Scripture. Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 13, the Jerusalem church was, says, all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. The people knew who was and who was not the church. Acts chapter 6, verse 2. It says that the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples. They actually knew who were Christians and professing and called them into a meeting. 1 Corinthians 5, are dealing with the church that has issues of sin. A man is having sex with his stepmom, presumably. And Paul's like, why are you not dealing with this? He says, you need to put him out of the church. He's not saying put him outside the building. You got to wait out there, Tom. Can't come in here. No, it's identification with the bride, the people. 1 Corinthians 11, the church celebrates the Lord's Supper when they gather together. Paul says to Timothy and Titus in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 that churches are supposed to have elders and deacons who have been vetted and have certain character qualifications and responsibilities to represent God's will for God's people using God's word. Let me give you what I think is a helpful historic summary. You look at the screen here. Interestingly, this actually comes from the Swedish Baptist Confession here of Baptists. It says, we believe that a true Christian church is a union of believing baptized Christians who have covenanted to strive to keep all that Christ has commanded, to sustain public worship under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, to choose among themselves shepherds, overseers, and deacons, to administer baptism in the Lord's Supper, to practice Christian church discipline, to promote godliness and brotherly love, and to contribute to the general spread of the gospel. Also, that every such church is an independent body, free in its relationship to other church, Christian churches, and acknowledging Christ only as its head. I got that right in 1861. This is the big picture. Much scripture to bring to bear on this, but let's get now into Galatians. Second question, what is learned about the church in Galatians? The previous months in Galatians, which I want to ask you to turn to, you've seen several things about them. In Galatians, these people gathered together. If you can go back to Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. This is this geographical area. These churches are meeting in different places in this area. And he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, let's get a running start on Galatians by going all the way back to actually Genesis. Because they're linked. Genesis, God creates, not all of creation, simply, but particularly he creates man in his image. Galatians, or excuse me, Genesis chapter 1, verse 29, let us make man in our image. You and I are image bearers, as 
remarkable, as radical as that is. That's why we show dignity and respect to each other, even if we disagree with each other, even if we have different ideology, even if we make different ethical decisions of which we think are right or wrong, we never treat each other with respect because we are fellow image bearers of God. But what we see in the very beginning of kind of our forefathers in history, with starting with Adam and Eve, we have rebelled against God. The scripture describes as being in Adam by representation. He sinned and we get all the credit for that. It continues it down to our lines even today. You notice you have these cute little kids around you. They're just adorable. They're funny. They have great personalities, and they just rebel. You've never had to teach a little kid to, like, do something wrong. You've got to teach him over and over and over and over again to do something right. And even then you're like, am I, like, the worst teacher on the planet? Maybe that's just my testimony as a parent. The heart is bent towards, inclined towards sin, And then throughout history, you have God continuing to make a series of covenants, promises of relationship. He did it first with Adam. Then he did it with Noah. Then he did it with Abraham. And then he did it with Moses. And then he did it with David. But all of that was a foreshadowing of ultimately what he would ultimately do in promising the new covenant. Because the reality is these representations fail every time. Adam certainly failed. Noah certainly failed. Abraham, as impressive as he was and as significant as that covenant is and continues to be as we're about to see, even he had problems lying about his wife and going to Egypt and not trusting God. And then, of course, you have people like Moses. Moses seemed like, man, that guy had a lot of work cut out for him. He had two million people. But nevertheless, still, eventually over time, in anger, he struck the rock and God forbids him from entering into the promised land. And you have David, like King David, he's like the stud of all studs. He's ruling and his land is wide and hugely conquerous. And yet he can't keep his eyes or his hands to himself. And he sleeps with another man's wife and has that wife's husband killed. So even seemingly for the best representations as we see throughout the Old Testament, they all fall short. But they promise one who is coming, who will not. Only the Lord Jesus Christ He is the one who comes to be the fulfillment. And so look at Galatians chapter 3. Look at what it says there, verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now look at verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring... It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment that goes all the way back, not only to the Abrahamic covenant, but what God promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that he would provide a seed who would crush the head of the serpent. The church are the people who are grafted into Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of what's given. Look earlier, Galatians chapter 3. Look at verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It's not the genealogical principle of connection. Are you ethnically Jewish or not? Look at verse 9. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Look again at verse 13. Look at what it says there. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Reality is, as Galatians is teaching, is that if we are in Christ by faith, then we are grafted, as Paul says in Romans, into him, and we are a part of the body of Christ. 
It's not because of the families you grew up in. It's not because of the ethics you promised to subscribe to. It's because of your faith alone and Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins and only because of his grace alone. But because of that, the hope you have. Now, look at the features of the Galatian church. I don't want you to miss it. Because for all the bad things they got to address, I still want you to recognize what's going on. First of all, seven features of the Galatian church in light of who they were. Number one, they gathered together. In verse 6, he's talking about this idea that I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, turned to a different gospel, and he goes on to keep talking about this. But here's what I want you to understand. For as messed up as the Galatians were, you know what the Galatians did? They got together. The idea of a Christian who would profess to be a follower of Christ but not be with other Christians is a strange misrepresentation of anything the New Testament teaches. Christians go where Christians go to be together. That doesn't mean that everything's good then. It just means that they, one, they gather together. Secondly, they have received suffering for being Christians. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 4. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you work miracles among you, do so by works of the law or hearing with faith? He's basically saying, listen, you start off the Christian life well. You were committed, but now you're starting to give up. Man, they were going through it. Third thing, they're a diverse gathering of Christians. The diversity is seen in their different ethnicities and different gender realities of how they were. And just to be clear, gender realities, the man or woman. All one in Christ, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Fourth, they're interested in obedience, albeit for the wrong reasons. They want to do what they're told to do. They just are doing it for the wrong reasons. Fifth, they support gospel workers. Look at Galatians chapter 4, verse 14. He says in Galatians 4, verse 14, Though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Meaning how well they were hospitable to him and cared for him in his need. Later on in Galatians chapter 6, verse 6, it says, Let the one who was taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. This idea of caring for their teachers accordingly. Six, they had a previous reputation of living for Christ. Look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 7. He says, you were running well. They had a good reputation at one point. Seventh, they were known for doing good. It says in chapter 6, verse 9, let us not grow weary of doing good, presuming they were already doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Friends, we could just stop right there and camp out on the seven features of the Galatian church and say, are these features of Grace Church? Or, in fairness to you, if you're still prayerfully deciding whether you're going to commit to Grace Church or some other local church in Miami, which is fine, we prayerfully pray that God will give you wisdom and discernment to where to commit to, that you can in good conscience agree with theologically and commit to personally. Is this the kind of features you're looking for in a faithful church? Which takes us to the third and final question. The first question is, what is the church or what is a church? Second question is, what's learned about the church in Galatians? And now third is, what should Grace Church do considering what we learn about the church? I don't know how many of you like reading biographies. Some of you might find that boring. I like reading biographies. I didn't at least always like reading biographies. Whether it's be watching documentaries, and I watch all kinds of documentaries. And biographies. Like just yesterday, I started watching a documentary about Val Kilmer. I researched good biographies on Amazon Prime, and one on Val Kilmer came up. I'm about halfway through it. Pretty fascinating. Simultaneously to that, I'm 
just bought and started reading a biography on Vladimir Putin. Don't be concerned. I'm just really curious in light of the new research, just this biography of this guy that this guy has written. And I want to learn more about who this person is that we hear so much about. So I'm in the middle of that. Now, I have to admit, the reason I like to watch these documentaries or read these biographies is you just not get to just know life. You get to learn a lot of lessons. Lessons about people. It's not just so you can kind of, you know, be like the great teammate at some upcoming Trivial Pursuit party at someone's house, though that might be kind of fun. It's really because I think there's just interesting things you can sort of learn about life and sort of process accordingly. I have no intention to be an actor, Val Kilmer. I have no intention to run a country to the ground, Vladimir Putin. But I do want to learn lessons. Come to the book of Galatians, there's a lot of things we can learn. It's a biography of sorts. These new churches in Galatia, and I say this with a bit of sobriety, because Grace Church, this church that you're a part of, that you're assembling with here, is a relatively new church. We're only four and a half years old. I say we're only in the sense that Miami Church Baptist Church, who we've merged together, has been here since the 40s, a faithful gospel witness in the city of Miami, as is other churches like Central Baptist Church, which used to be at one time called First Baptist Church of Miami until they had a lot of issues and they kind of renamed, but that goes back over 100 years. Stanton Memorial Baptist Church is just up the road, and it's not just the Baptist churches. It's other non-denominational churches like, you know, other places around or Presbyterian churches. They have history. But the question is, what should we learn at a young age of four and a half years old from other churches? Well, I think we could do biographies as other places, documentary series, if you will, but we could just read the book of Galatians and learn some lessons for ourselves. And I think these can turn into prayer requests. And so I've presented them to you this way, six prayer requests and areas to work on at Grace Church in light of Galatians. Number one, let's pray and work to have a theologically sound elders to lead our church. Let's pray and work to have theologically sound elders to lead our church. You go back to Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. I'll just hit a few highlights here in verses 6 and 8 and 9. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. But then he goes on to make this statement in verse 8. Even if we, are an, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. He didn't stutter. Verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And he goes on later to talk about this. The problem was that they began to receive and welcome and listen to and subscribe to teachers who per, per, apparently were very pervasive in their teaching and persuasive in how they taught, and they were drawn away into believing it. Part of what we talked about two weeks ago was on the problem of false teaching. You could say that the subtitle to that sermon was, How and Why to Fire Your Pastors. Provocative as that title might sound. The challenge today is churches get planted, churches get new pastors who are already established, often based on experience. Where have you been? Or based on reputation, what have you done? Or based on personality, you're kind of dynamic. I think people could follow you. 
And very few times, actually, do you find people saying, actually, can we actually hear what you think about the Bible? Let's spend not five minutes. Let's spend a couple hours. Let's work through the scriptures together. And let's see if you are what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, if you can teach sound doctrine and refute false doctrine. Tell us, sir, what you think about the Trinity, if you have any thoughts about the Trinity. Tell us what you think about the hypostatic union, a fancy word for God being Jesus Christ, being fully God and fully man. Tell us what you think about faith. Is it to be alone or faith plus your works? And tell me why does that matter in light of history and whether people are going to heaven or hell? Don't impress me with what you say and do. Don't impress me with where you've been and who you know. Show me that you know the word of God. Friends, Grace Church will continue or not continue to be in direct relationship to its leaders, a faithful church. And so we want to pray and work to have theologically sound elders to lead our church. Secondly, let's pray and work to have biblically literate congregation that holds us leaders accountable. You're like, what is that kind of implied with number one? But let me not leave it to implication. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Earlier on, as I said in chapter 1, verse 6, he talks about you are so quickly deserting him. Do you notice that the letter to the Galatian churches is not written to the elders of the churches in Galatia? The shepherds, the overseers, it's written to the members? Do you realize how important it is that you actually know your Bible? Have you ever thought about like this? When you're having your quiet time, it's not just kind of have the mindset a verse a day keeps the devil away. A verse a day will keep the false teachers away. As you grow in discernment to learn scripturally what is sound and what is not sound, what is right and what is not right. And this is something we talk about at the foundations class here at Grace Church. Those who are interested in considering prayerfully being a member of the church. How do we do kind of theological triage? Not all doctrines the same, but it is from God and therefore important, but it's not ultimately the same as far as equal weight and authority. We might have differences on end times realities, differences in baptism and who should be baptized, but we should not have differences in is there actually a God? Is he tri trin Trinitarian in nature? Is Jesus Christ his son? How is a man saved or not saved? Friends, do you know that? Too often, Christians are caught flat-footed. They just do not know their Bibles that well. In fact, quite honestly, for a lot of Christians, pastors on Sunday who are preaching are like doing their quiet time for them for the week. I've not read the Bible this entire week. I know I should. Give me a break. I'm busy. But I'm looking for you to kind of give me like a little bit of injection, like a little bit of a spiritual steroid shot. And they'll ride that, I hope, taking me to next week, and I'll come back in like a car pulling into the gas station, almost on empty, but getting refilled. Now listen, if that's you, I'm not trying to shame you. I'm just trying to say that is creating a very weak church at Grace Church where you're more likely to let false teaching creep in, wrong ways of thinking creep in with the counsel given and the teachers you have than actually a biblically literate church. Not in pride, but in humility, faithfully handing the word of God. Thirdly, let's pray and work together to protect the gospel from distortion or dilution. From distortion or dilution. Why do I say that? Well, look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Verse 16, we know that a person, 
regardless of us Jew or Gentile, in verse 15, a person is not justified by works of the law, no matter how many good things you do. God's not going to declare you right. But through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Think of it like this, friends. Teachers and members of the church, leaders and members of the church, both being qualified, knowing their Bibles, but the ground zero of your understanding without distortion or dilution is that you get the gospel right. If I was to ask you this question, tell me the gospel in 30 seconds. Could you confidently and clearly tell me the gospel in 30 seconds? I'm not trying to emphasize the time as being the determiner if you're a Christian or not. It's not the point. I'm trying to emphasize the idea of being able to state it succinctly and clearly. What is the gospel? And let me just burst a few bubbles. The gospel is not simply saying, God is love and God loves you. That's a component feature to the reality of the gospel, but that's not the gospel. I say this because we want to have and we want to pray for that we have clarity on the gospel. And Galatians chapter 2 verse 16 is like ground zero on what it is. Fourth, Let's pray and work to represent an accurate witness of the church to the world. Let's pray and work to represent an accurate witness of the church to the world. Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 is profound in what he says. He's talking about this whole idea that we're all in Abraham if we're of faith. Galatians chapter 3 verse 7, verse 9, verse 13, 14. And then he kind of just makes this statement. Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Baptized into Christ, look at verse 28 of Galatians chapter 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. One of the greatest things about Miami, amongst many great things about Miami, is how ethnically, culturally diverse we are. I love it here. And that doesn't make other places less great, but we're set up so well to let the Word of God reverberate into our community, evangelizing, befriending, loving people, and as God saves them, gathering them together. So now look at us. You'd have a hard time trying to pick like the dominant one here. There's a sense in which the church, as you see in Galatians 3.20, is like a church of minorities, in the sense that we are all yet the majority in that we're all together in Christ. So though we maybe have different languages as our first language, though we have maybe different passports of residents of other countries that we're born in or still have citizenship with, though we maybe have different cultural practices or maybe different socioeconomic realities of the square feet of space we live in or how new or old, if we even have a car, it is. Though some of us are single and some of us are married, some of us are widows and some of us are not, some of us have no kids, some of us have more kids and we can remember all their names, but we're all together in Christ. And how that illustrates beautifully to the watching world, God loves sinners and everyone is qualified. The second feature to this point four, though, 
is chapter 5, verse 18. It's not just how they look in their gathering. It's how they live in their community. Verse 18. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Jump down to the reality of the sense, this, the significance of this. So it's not only how we are in identification, it's how we are in demonstration. Not because we're self-righteous, but because God did not save us to leave us in the practices and the pursuits that we previously had before Christ. This is why I think out of love for you, I would say, if you're professing to be a Christian, but your life is virtually no different than when before you professed to be a Christian, I think you're right to ask yourself if you're really a Christian. Not because you're saved by your good works. No, no, you're saved by faith alone and Christ alone. But that faith produces in you, as Ephesians 2.10 says, that you'd walk in the good works that God prepared beforehand, that you'd walk in them. So what do you desire? The things of the world? Or the things of the Spirit? The things of the flesh or the things of God? Number five, let's pray and work to live by the Spirit in order that the glory of Christ may be put on display. What do I mean by this? Well, this is a continuation of this topic. You can see it in verse 20 of Galatians 5. Uh, excuse me, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. In chapter 5, we can see this again, verse 16, I walk by the Spirit. I will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Again, as it says there in verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with passion and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. And he tells us earlier in verse 22 and 23 what that looks like. So can I just correct some of you? And I mean this politely because I think you just believed what you were told, but I think you were told inaccurately. Your desire to chase a Spirit-filled life is to not chase some type of extra ecstatic utterance, the wrong representation of the speaking in tongues or some type of miraculous display that would sort of wash over you like a warm blanket of emotion or feeling. You actually want to live by the Spirit by doing what it says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, by being characterized by love, joy, peace, kindness, even in the relational realities of this, you say, what does a spirit-filled life look like for you? Look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, meaning spirit-filled, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Friends, I'm not asking at home, are you just cranking some Jesus music and just going for it hardcore? Feel free to do that. I'm asking, are you involved in relationships within the body of Christ where you're bearing burdens, you're pursuing the wandering sheep, you're caring for each other, you love one another, 
And in humility, you take action and guard yourself as well from these kind of temptations. Seventh, or excuse me, sixth and final. Let's pray and work to love one another through serving one another, not growing weary by doing good. What does he say in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13? You were called to freedom, brothers. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. It's hard. That's why he acknowledges in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Friends, the bride of Christ is not only an embassy of heaven waiting for the return of Christ. It's an opportunity for us to put on display the power of the gospel to change a bunch of reprobate sinners who are now redeemed saints who through love serve one another. The people around you are God's gift to you, even at times the difficult ones, even the ones who don't look like you and at times don't act like you. That's the opportunity in which the church, the truth of God's people before this world is put on display of the power of the gospel. I just gave you six prayer requests. In case you missed it, be fair if you did, you could literally pick one of those prayer requests each day for the next week to pray for your church. Would you commit to doing that this week? Starting tomorrow, would you start to pray for the elders of this church? And then on Tuesday, would you begin to pray for you as members of this church? Just continue to pray through that, and then we be reunited back together next Sunday. But you're not left going, how do I pray for my church? Am I praying for their money? Am I praying for their building? Here are six things you can pray for in light of what Galatians has taught us. So we've answered these questions. What is the church? What is a church? What is learned from the church in Galatians? And what should Grace Church do considering what we have learned about the church? Here's what I love about God's providence. He lined it up. He gets all the credit. This is not my mastermind. He lined it up that this sermon would hit on a Sunday. We'd have the Lord's Supper together. The Lord's Supper is the way by which the church is made visible by how they come together. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, talks about how as the church gathers together, it says, as there is one bread, so there is one body. Now, he's not commending that the size of the church should have the size of a loaf of bread depending on the size of the church. That would have been an awfully large loaf of bread in Solomon's portico, a couple thousand people. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about the one single loaf of bread. He's talking about the fact that they come together to take this together, and in taking this together, they're reminded by being together of who they are in relationship to one another. They are one body. It's what Paul says to Philippians. He wishes he could be with them. He can't be with them. But he says, may I hear that while I'm absent that you are standing side by side for the faith of the gospel. Friends, the Lord's Supper is not, listen to me, it's not a supersized, steroid-injected, quiet time that you're having your person in front of other people. It is a time for personal reflection and self-examination, but it's also a time for communal reminder of who you are together in Christ. Part of what we do at the end is we sing a song. Even those voices remind you, I am not alone. 
Christ loves me, Christ loves us. That's why we're trying to slowly, gently pastor you into extending your fellowship with one another by just staying for five more minutes after the service and talking. Ten more minutes. Thirty more minutes. Like, whoa, slow it down, preacher boy. Listen to what Daniela said, going and sharing a meal. You got to eat anyway, people. You're hungry. I get it. Where we go is not first and foremost about the food we eat. It's about the fellowship we share. These are the people you will spend an eternity with in heaven. And to say, I can't spend a meal with them, says more than I think you maybe mean to say. So we want to encourage you to prayerfully consider if God is calling you to commit to be a part of the church. And if he is, to renew that commitment by how you love and serve one another. And sometimes serving just by talking, by listening, and by what you hear, by praying. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.